0: And we're
1: rolling, so there you go Hey, and welcome to Going Off Track, I'm Jonah I'm Brad And together we are The dynamic duo Feeling super dynamic of today punk
0: rock podcasts
1: Punk rock podcasting Uh, Brad, how are you?
0: You know, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've spent the whole day trying to figure out if I have a cold Or if I have really bad allergies that are, um enhanced by a, a hangover. Yeah. You could have both. I could have all the three you're saying. Hangover, cold, bad allergies. Yeah. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's cool. life. That's life, bro. Yeah, probably is all three, it should be. Yeah. Might as well be. I know, Lord knows I've destroyed my immune system. Yeah. Late. Well, I've so, well been there. It's just it's for a good cause, you know. I've been partying for a good cause, which is what? Uh to stay sane so I can raise my children. <laughs> your non- you're non-profit, your non-profit, Brad's kids. Yeah, we had a well that, and you know, we had a fundraiser over the weekend for my daughter's school, which was pretty fun. I really didn't know about that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, this is a, this is an inside joke to me, uh, uh, All right, let's move on. All right, anyways. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: today on the podcast we have uh, Jonah. We have me <laughs> and don't have me. Uh, our guest is uh, um, also known as Andy, also known as an old buddy of mine. And he uh, met Andy on the Warp Tour in 2003. He was freestyling. Uh, actually, Jeff Jeff Rickley and his uh, wife at the time, her girlfriend, future wife, future ex-wife, I don't know, whatever. Jeff and his girlfriend told me you got to check out this dude in the Coat of the Cuts tent, and I saw him, and he was. He was freestyling um, just based on suggestions people from the audience were yelling out. And it was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. And it's been cool to watch astronaut keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And he was in town doing this podcast. He played a show, sold out show at Rough Trade. Um, his record was charting on iTunes. It, Competing with Kanye. He beat the he beat the clean Kanye record and was trying to get to the dirty one, trying to beat that one too on iTunes. He was at number like two or three. Impressive. Yeah, so he's killing it. And uh this podcast was cool. We talked all about his sort of career, how he got into rap, the records called Cut the Body Loose. It's out now inside One Dummy, and sort of the concept behind that. And it's sort of this um kind of traditional way they do funerals in New Orleans. A lot of it's New Orleans culture based, which is really interesting. We talked about how he got this crazy deal with Harley Davidson where they gave him a motorcycle and he traveled around the world, how he busted his face open on Warp Tour. I was there and had to get metal plates put in. I mean, it's, uh, he's been through a lot. I mean, but yeah, it's been a long time. He's been doing this for yeah, like 15 years. He keeps getting better. And it's, he's one of those dudes where it's like, he's so good and it's nice to finally see someone you think is so talented finally kind of break through after trying for so long. Yeah, like it's he, like it's one of those things where I was always like, why isn't this guy huge <laughs> for over a decade? And now he sort of is getting huge, or at and least getting a little bit of it. At least getting a little bit of it, and it's very validating. Sweet. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Enough. Enough gushing. Everything good with you, Brad? Everything's fine, other than my, uh, you know, f- figuring
0: out my health.
1: Yeah. Well. I'll be better. Yeah, we'll troubleshoot that during the podcast. Um, we'll give Brad some blood work, uh, maybe pump him with some antibiotics, and hopefully in an hour, he'll be feeling way better. Oh, and yeah. in the meantime, check out Astronautilus, and uh, cool, here you go. It's going
2: just try skimming across the surface or of the just water. Just go
3: fast enough to make it across. <laughs>
2: uh-huh. I like it.
3: I think about that sometimes. I'm looking from like my park in Jersey City and I'm like, man, that place is so goddamn close, but it's going to take me an hour and a half to fucking get there. Just need a kayak, man. Like if I could only kayak, if you could just start paddle boarding to Brooklyn. Yeah, 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 no big deal. It's so easy.
2: Yeah, I really like it there
3: actually. Yeah, I've been I do there too. About. It's cool. Awesome. You should come. Yeah, everyone in Jersey City wants you I to know, come know it's, yeah, it's in so in a like, recruiting process. Yeah, but by like, the time you actually came, it would probably be massively overrun by yuppies by that point. I think it's so. too late,
1: yeah. I think you probably got in there real early, but I feel like real estate and rent and stuff, there's
3: probably I didn't get like, in there real early. I mean, with any gentrified New Jersey City, there was the pioneers well before I got there, actually. <laughs>
2: the settlers. Yeah,
3: kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know? And they're usually always like... Uh, artists in the gay community for yeah. you know some reason looking for cheaper rent and they wound up in Jersey City, but that happened in like the late '80s. People started started going over there, so I was still not allowed to move. I lived right. with my parents. Right. Well, Andy, where
1: do you live? Because I feel like it's always like Andy's <laughs> like, well, I live in Texas, and then people are like, well, I live in Maine, or I live in like Minneapolis.
2: I live in Minneapolis now, and okay. I, I have you... been there for almost five years, which okay. is the longest I have lived anywhere. Since I was 12. So you're from
1: Texas originally? No.
2: I was born in Northern Virginia, and I grew up in Maryland until I was 12, and I lived in Maryland um, for the most of my life, and then moved to Florida, Jacksonville, Florida. My father's job moved us down there. And then I went to school in Dallas, and I lived in Dallas for four years, and then I went on tour immediately after I graduated from college, so I moved in with my parents back in Florida, and I lived in Florida for three years, and I moved to Seattle for a girl, which didn't work out, and I stayed in Seattle out of spite for three years, and now <laughs> I live in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I'm the happiest I've ever been. But you're up in uh, Maine a lot or something? No, I'm like, well, I was for a stretch. My guitarist okay. is in Maine, and so when I tour with the band, we used to start... There was a period of time when my guitarist and my drummer were in Maine, so we'd start the tours sort of in the Northeast and practice in Maine. But now I have a new drummer who lives in Minneapolis, so I just make my guitarist stomach ass fly all the way out there. Gotcha. Yeah.
1: And we met, when, 2002, I think?
2: Three. 2003? First, first world tour I did, 2003, my first tour ever.
1: That was your first tour ever?
2: First tour ever. I graduated from college, I had a degree in directing and lighting design for theater and i was going to be a lighting designer and then i got asked to go on the warp tour in 03 for i got a 30 minute slot on a tent with no money go of the cuts go of the guts <laughs> and it changed my life man and i went out there we would me and my best friend my roommate at the time he was sick of his job and we were like let's just try it and see what happens and if nothing happens then we'll just both go on with our lives and um yeah that was that was 2003 it's so
3: how did that happen were you like <clears throat> were you like Pushing your stuff and then they just happened to hear it or like just kind of fell nah, into it was their just hands
2: like the guy that opened up for everybody in Dallas like every rapper that came through Dallas uh, and like and so uh, atmosphere came through and they I mean they Dallas was kind of one of the first seasons where they had a fan base outside of the Midwest and so they started coming through in 99 or 98 I saw him in '99 in a bowling alley, and nice. then, so I was always just opening up for them. And at the time, they had the these two uh, female DJs like opening up for them, and one of them was a woman named Adverse from Lansing, Michigan, yeah. and she somehow got involved with Kevin Lyman in the Warp Tour and set up this weird little hip hop side stage, and got a kind of marginal budget for it. And she was just desperately seeking people to go on the tour and we were desperately willing to try it out. And so we yeah, my my buddy who was my roommate at the time is now my manager, sold his Chevy Impala and bought a Honda Element and we basically lived out of that for the next like three years or so. That's awesome. Just yeah, like kinda like uh going through touring, you know, college.
3: Is <laughs> yeah. are those hookups like uh, how you wound up in Minneapolis through like the Def Jux kind of stuff? No, 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 no none of
2: that stuff. Like I ended up, uh, you mean Rhyme Sayers, but um, yeah. Oh, right, right. Yeah, right. I cool. ne- um yeah. Sort of, well, I mean, I guess indirectly. So, like, on 2004, the atmosphere brought this dude out to run merch for them and sort Steph. of yeah POS and with the promise like you can work merch and you know people drop off all the time slots always open you could probably get a couple of shows out of it and Steph was the worst merch person they ever had <laughs> in their entire life because he basically was like yeah totally I'll work merch and spend his entire time trying to get shows. Right. And, I remember
1: him coming up to the I was working the AP booth I remember being like I'm going to be on this tent today I was like oh really and he's like yeah 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 just <laughs>
2: strangers like yep. he was uh, so enthusiastic about it and he and I met and like i just really we really liked each other but we really hadn't i hadn't heard his music and he gave me a sampler cd of his record label, This crew doom tree and it was just like a, astounding like song like normally huh. you get that whole sampler and you're like boy these two people let's focus on them right yeah, it yeah. was just song after song after song after song and like after that like he played one show and his show was so killer and we were just fast friends from that point on and started working on music together and then i started going out there and you know to work on music with him and through him i met um people from a record label called totally gross national product which is like uh gangs and polisa uh, and a bunch of other kind of really awesome bands from there this guy ryan olson and this guy drew christophson um and sort of i would go out there to work on music and it'd be like i'm gonna go for five days work on music and the next day, time i would go for like i'm gonna go for 10 days work on music for five days stay for five days and then i was going out there for like two weeks at a time and finally like through that, like, basically through Rhyme Sayers, I met Steph and Doomtree, and then that I met Totally Gross National Product, and through that I met, like, Bon Iver and those dudes, all that whole scene sort of, all like, right. I was living in Seattle and sort of hating Seattle and was ready for something new and was looking at all over the world to move, and I just uh, decided to go there instead, and that was that was all she wrote. I love it there.
1: Uh, nice. I want to back up for a sec. Mm-hmm. What happened? I remember on that tour, mm-hmm. you, like... Destroyed your face.
2: 2004, the second. That was 2004. Story. Okay, okay. Yeah. I remember
1: Andy coming up to the tent and like it looked like half his face had been ripped off. Yeah, goodness well, gracious. It was you look a- great now, by the way. You never
3: know.
2: Thank it. you, thank you. I got it was actually a very clean wound. I got real lucky.
3: By uh, how dramatically you set it up, I'm picturing like it Tommy like, Lee Jones ripped up. It was in my just head. like I'm very Two Face. Right it's, now, it's
2: well, yeah. There was no like vat of acid involved <laughs> or anything. But no, I was on. Ironically enough, not ironically at all. That's not iron- irony at all. Um <laughs> Just as a strange coincidence, I was in <laughs> Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I happened to be Atlantis Morissette at the time, um, and I was on stage with uh, Atmosphere, just f- fucking around, because there's their hometown show, right. tons of people, we were in the parking lot of the Metrodome, and they had a DJ back then, this incredible human being named Mr. Dibbs out of Cincinnati, Ohio, yeah. and he's a bald dude with a bandana, and all on stage all the time, and he had this idea for the Minneapolis show, he found all these like bald caps. And he was like, "Ah, oh, man!" He always staged over in the show. He was like, "I'm gonna get a bunch of people wear the ball caps and the bandanas, so it'd be like a million Mr. Dibs is diving into the crowd." And so the war Tour, as we all know, has like a lot of lawyers, and you can't jump from the stage into the crowd. You have to jump down from the stage to the security barrier, then uh-huh. climb up the security barrier, then jump into the crowd. Yeah, yeah. And so I followed the rules, and I jumped down from the stage to the security barrier. And because it was a hot summer day, they had been spraying everybody with squirt guns all day. <laughs> my right hand, my hands reached out to grab the rail, and they grabbed the rail. and My right foot. I um, went to land on the step, my left foot went landed on one of the concrete, and my hands grabbed the rail, and then both the step and the concrete were soaking wet, and they just, my feet just slipped out from underneath uh, me, and my head just went, clack, on the security oh. rail. I hit so hard that I bounced me back up onto my feet. Um, and I didn't know at the time, but I severed the nerve in my face, this uh. nerve right here, and so I didn't feel anything. And so I was just like, you know, I'm a young guy on this like punk rock tour full of tough dudes and whatever, and I was like, well, I'm, I figured like, I'm I a skateboard. I'm familiar with getting hurt. I figured, like, I'm gonna have a big goose egg or whatever. And I'm like, I'm not gonna not jump into the crowd and have a goose egg. Like, I'm not gonna have this dumb thing on my face for a week and not jump in the crowd. So I jump in the crowd. because it's an atmosphere show in 2004, the entire front part of the crowd is just teenage girls.
3: That was a lot of thinking for just banging your head. I was like, quick on my feet. That and was good. And, and so I just,
2: <laughs> I dive into the crowd. Well, yeah, my, like, um, my panic mechanism of being considered a pussy was like, just kicks in real fast. <laughs> Like that I can think a lot faster that way if you ask me to spell occasionally, it's gonna take me a week and a half, but man, oh man, if like there's some opportunity to be made fun of, then I'm quick. So I jump into the crowd, and what I didn't know at the time was that my face was split like wide open. Oh. Um, and I land on top of the crowd, and I'm like crowd surfing on my back, and blood starts like shooting out of my head, like above me, like not fucking joking, like a fountain. And it's like raining down, and I'm just like, move me to the front, move me to the front, move me to the front, and they move me into the pit. And I look, and there's literally a girl like covered in my blood, like Carrie on prom night. And, <laughs> and like the security guys, they're all like, it's the stage managers and shit, they've all known me because it's my second year, they're like all usher me off. And I like as I'm walking away from this poor girl, I just go, sorry, <laughs> you know, And I reach up and I touch my forehead. And at this point, I now understand that I reached in and touch my own skull.
0: Wow.
2: Um, they give me a big like towel folded up into like a cube, you know, and I put it on my forehead and everyone's like running around like crazy and because I didn't I sever the nerve. There's no pain. Wow. And so I'm just sitting there and like in the, over the course of like two minutes, that entire white towel just becomes blood Fuck. red and there's blood pouring down my face. And they go get my, you know, my manager and he comes over and everyone's going crazy and he comes over and he's just like, you all right, man? And I'm like, yeah, man, I think I feel fine. And he's like, so like, yeah, so literally three weeks before I was bombing down a hill in, um, we went to Cannon Beach. We had a day off after the Portland show. I was bombing down a hill on my skateboard and ate shit so hard, tore my whole side open. Uh. Just like got speed wobbles at the bottom of the hill and just tore my whole side open. My mother made me get. Like disaster health insurance, like fifty dollars a month disaster health insurance, and thank God that she did because it would have cost me like twenty five thousand wow, dollars. Good
3: looking out, mom. So anyway,
2: I get this. So like, I have he's already he's familiar with me being covered in blood for a stupid reason. <laughs> like it's a thing he's seen this happen a lot, and so like he like he's like you know are you all right, man? And I'm like yeah, I think so. Just blood all in my face and my teeth, and I'm like yeah, I think so. And he's like can I see it? And I pull the towel back and he goes whoa, <laughs> and he goes you all right? And I'm like yeah yeah man, I, I think I'm all right. They be the first day comes over, like, yeah, there's nothing we could do. They tape it up, and they're like, you got to go to the hospital. And I go, Where are the, where's the hospital? It's right across the street. And they're, like, and they're like, do you need an ambulance? And I'm like, nah, I'll just walk there. And so I, me, <laughs> my manager, who's like a... Burly, like a tattooed Texan With a bunch of crazy hair At the time Now it's shaved head And then this other rapper ADM And this suicide girl All walk into this <laughs> hospital It's a real good joke <laughs> Sounds like a set Yeah, yeah right, right. Yeah, No, totally And so we all walk into this hospital And we're all fucking around We get in there And it's the, the, the dawn Of like camera phones When they were the tiny little thing That you could plug mm-hmm. into the bottom of your phone, your phone So I'm like taking pictures And send them to friends Without any explanation of This is like giant bloody face <laughs> And like we get in there, the doctor's super cool, it's, he's laughing his ass off, we get the whole wound cleaned up, and he's like getting ready to stitch it closed, and he feels like a bump on my skull, and he's like, oh, everything gets real quiet, he's like, you gotta get a CT scan... I fractured my skull. Oh my god! Yeah, so I had to go to surgery immediately, and now I have a titanium plate and uh, two titanium screws uh, right there in my forehead. Ever since, and it's still there's still some nerve damage and stuff in and around there. Like I touch here, and it feels like down here. Um, But uh, yeah, I missed uh, two shows.
3: And what was the vibe that day? Like when when you were like, because it sounds like you were pretty like in good spirits and jovial about knocking your head open like did the whole thing just like shift down when he's like yeah you crack your skull i gotta do this i
2: mean i was probably too stupid to know that it was scary and 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 he was like and he was like and he explained like you when you fracture your skull you have to go in now because the risk of infection like one Uh, bit of infection is in your brain and you can die right and so there was sort of like a oh all right. Well, this is what we got to do like, is what we
3: do. I'm like we're here.
2: And I remember, yes, yeah. Well, I might as well get the full treatment. Yeah. Um uh but I remember going under. I never like I've never broken a bone before, which is kind of crazy considering all the skateboarding and surfing and stupid shit, but like I remember like laying in the hospital bed and getting the putting the anesthesia on me. And like as of just before they like turn it on, they're like I'm trying to explain to these nurses like what my stage name is and like I'm like oh, spelling it out, my stupid <laughs> stage name, and they're like, Alright, count backwards to ten and right as they're like looking at up my MySpace <laughs> and so I hear like right as I'm going under like the first like song of my MySpace play and then just like done. <laughs> and then wake up like I had a dream that like I had this beautiful nurse like taking care of me, this beautiful blonde nurse. She could have been a beautiful blonde nurse, it could have been just like some, you know, you know, giant Mexican dude or something. I have no idea. But like I was I had a great time, man. <laughs> I had fun. I woke up and I was kicked off the tour. Really? Um, yeah, because some security guard told Kevin Lyman that I broke the rules and I jumped from the stage into the crowd. And then um, I was like, when I woke up, I called my manager. I was like, I'm up. Can you go pick me up? And He's like, yeah. He's like, you're kicked off the tour. Wow, <laughs> like, really? Cool. Yeah, yeah. And then the time it took for him to drive from the hotel to the hospital. I had been back on the tour because uh, the dudes from Atmosphere all heard that I'd been kicked off the tour and they, because it was their hometown show, had been filming everything and they went to Lyman with um, the, all of the video proof that uh. I did absolutely everything I was supposed to do and the tour was sort of at fault. And he was like, oh yeah, he's back on the tour. <laughs> like, uh. real quick. So I was like, hey, he got back. He was like, so I'm like so glum, like I kicked off the tour and I'm sitting there in the parking lot with a giant swollen face <laughs> and stitches in my head and like a bottle of codeine and I was like, oh, this is the worst news ever and then by the time, like 10 minutes later... He Brock my manager pulls up and he goes Chris, Guess what You're back on the tour it's Awesome let's go <laughs> But yeah I took two days off the tour and it was, I think before that Everyone looked at me Sort of like That white kid They could rap And then after that I, like I walked on the tour In Orlando Like it was a day off, and I missed two shows. So it was, like, three days later. And I had, like, a stitches all on my face and, like, a bandana over the stitches. And, like, even, like, the gnarly, like, kind of, like, you know, super jacked punk-ass, like, you know, um, like, truck drivers and shit were just like, what's up, man? Like, all of a sudden, I had all this unwarranted street cred that was just fantastic. And well, I, I guess okay. your,
3: your instinct to not be viewed as a pussy went pretty well. Yeah, man, those yeah. instincts
2: have kept me alive yeah, this far, man, well. through hip-hop well. and living in Florida. Yeah,
3: But, yeah, I remember, like, <laughs> Jeff.
1: Jeff mm-hmm. and, Jeff Rickley, yeah, and yeah. Shell were like, they were the ones that were sort of like, you got to check this guy out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember, yeah, like going in the tent and it was so, I never had seen anything like that, especially like the freestyle stuff where it'd be like, I was telling about like, Hungry Hunger Hippos and Saddam Hussein and whatever. And it was like, you would make these narratives Yeah. that, I mean, like, what? how did that sort of come about? I was like, cause I've never really seen anyone's brain work like that. Oh uh, i think it was a lot of practice and like a lot of like teenage loneliness
2: <laughs> and then a couple with a complete like suburban like naivete like i got introduced to rap music i grew up listening to like the smiths and the clash and like grunge rock and stuff like that and then like in eighth grade my older brother who was really involved in like the baltimore like house scene like the early stages of like rave culture there got introduced to that and they got introduced to rap music and he gave me rap music
3: what year was that around I was eighth
2: grade, uh oh boy. uh math. Uh probably like ninety two, ninety one, something like that. Um someone can fact check that. <laughs> how old I versus how old I am. Um but like uh yeah, so he gave me a tape that had uh Lord Finesse's Return of the Funky Man on it. Um and yeah, so I probably have ninety two. Um 92 93 something like that um and on the b side with like kind of the remaining space he put some songs from guru's jasmine Taz volume one Ooh. on it and like that was the first like i hated rap music because rap music was like mc hammer you right, know and right, like right. Th- but there was this whole other world in rap music that was going on that wasn't going to be played on the radio and wasn't mm-hmm. making it down to jacksonville beach florida and so he gave me this tape and that like blew my mind i'd never heard anything like that before and he told me and which is true lord finesse is like kind of one of the pioneers of like modern freestyle rap he's an incredible freestyle rapper and like in my own like stupid suburban mind like i thought his album was a uh, freestyle and i thought that's what freestyles uh, were supposed to sound like huh. and i heard that and like i was a theater kid i was really into improv and stuff like that and so i heard that and i was like well this is like us. Oh, this is like improv this is like theater sports huh. or whatever like i can do this and so i decided that i want to be a rapper and like for two years i just did it i didn't tell anybody because at the, at the time too like rap was still like outlaw music there was not white kids trying to rap like they yeah.
3: i'm sure there were but they weren't public you know it was maybe just third base and yeah, boys. yeah it's basically third base and beastie boys, yeah. and then a bunch
2: of jokes right like yeah. and so like ultimately you know snow Yes, your boy Snow, Vanilla Ice, and all this. Like, and so, like, ultimately, like, I remember when my mom seeing a BC Boys video and her just being like, "That's stupid." And it was the "Fight for Your Right to Party" video. It was stupid, but like, right, I was yeah. convinced that my parents were going to kick me out of the house if I told them I wanted to be a rapper. Which they're the most wonderful supportive people ever. <laughs> but like, I thought that I was if I was going to freestyle, it had to sound like the thing that Lord Finesse had written. And so I spent two years trying to sound like that. Um, and then when I decided to like start to come out and battle kids. Um, I beat everybody, yeah, and I, it was the first time that like I beat anybody in anything. I was a really <laughs> tiny kid, like I was smart, but I was not i mean i was I could hit a baseball, but I was not all star material yeah. you know, and I was not a fighter or anything like that, and so, like for the first time in my life, I beat everybody, and I beat everybody, and it was like i I was in a school, Jacksonville. Jackson was the south and so you have kids bust in from different neighborhoods and so you had kids and it's a navy town so yeah like I I beat all the big black kids which was like a, everyone I mean that sound, may sound crazy now at this point in time and they're sort of changing face of rap music or whatever but at the time like no white dude was rapping like that mm-hmm. in, like in in my neighborhood mm-hmm. and I beat one of them and then that kid just took me around to all of them and made me battle all of them and then was like, who is this white boy? What the fuck have you been? And that sort of changed like everything for me. And so all I did for years was just battle and freestyle. I didn't write songs. Like it wasn't a music, I wasn't rap wasn't a musical or artistic endeavor for me. It was like strictly like a skill or a sport. It was a craft, you know? And so it wasn't about writing songs or being artful or having emotional connection to anything. And so I didn't write anything for years. And so that's like it took me a long time to figure out how to write songs. Um, f- being on stage and performing and stringing kind of a narrative out of freestyle, like, um, that came easier. And that was like a thing that sort of came out of. I took an idea that a rapper named Supernatural, like a real famous old freestyle rapper, used to do, where he used to like, he'd play live shows and have people pull things out of their pockets and he would like, rap about what's in their pockets. But what he would do is he would just be like, someone would pull out a lighter or whatever and it would just, he would make like kind of one line about a lighter and it would just be like kind of generic. It was really cutting edge at the time, but ultimately, right. like a lot of people have surpassed him. But if someone pulled out a lighter and he'd be like, all these other rappers are biters, this motherfucker here has got a fucking lighter. <laughs> and at the time, that was like cutting edge and mind blowing. Sure. Yeah. And I heard that and I was just like really amazed by it and started to do it, but then try to kind of push beyond it and so my i would be like, skateboarding and whatever and hang out with kids skateboarding and they would like give me topics but then started like i hung out with a bunch of weirdo art kids and they would give me like all right you got to battle yourself and pretend you're wood in one verse and then you got to be water in another and yeah, it was like yeah. really super nerdy and like you know i went to art school um but that ultimately that was what built into like that thing that I do at the show where I take like five topics from the audience and sort of build a narrative out of it. Do you still do that? Yeah, I do it less and less. I do it like kind of whenever I want to. Yeah. Which ultimately is most of the shows, but not all of the shows. Like if I don't feel like doing it, I don't feel like doing it cuz like I get to a point where I've kind of really grown back to love it. But after doing it for so long, especially those early tours that you first saw me on, probably like two thirds of my show was freestyling, right? Because um, I didn't have any songs, you know. Then right. and, and and most people didn't like my songs, and like my songs weren't that good. And so ultimately, uh, you know, I had to fill fill air with something, and that was entertaining, and that would keep people around. Um,
3: so back in the day, would you just you would just run a beat and start freestyling, or how would you like set up your show?
2: Yeah, I mean when i was in D- dallas like it, i did sort of everything i had a dj i would play shows by myself there was a period in dallas like, another thing that kind of really got my chops up was like i was going up to denton every weekend and i have a full band like and we would just play and we kind of like that was really where i learned how to perform um they would we would play for like two hours right and they would just it would be there was one guy that was a piano player and then my dj and they were sort of the core of the band and sometimes it would be just them or sometimes it would be them and a drummer and sometimes it'd be them and a drummer in a nine-piece brass band i would show up and i would never have any idea who it would be and then i would just freestyle for like two hours Mm. and just like rock the crowd and like it was um it became kind of you know a big thing in denton texas you know in the in the early 2000s and so that was like my first like fan base um and we went through a bunch of different names and stuff and that was sort of like how it began and once i started touring You know, I couldn't afford to bring a band, and so I started out with just me and a laptop, and then eventually had a DJ, and then went back to the laptop, and then um, now I have a band, but these tours, you know, I'm doing stuff solo with a bunch of little, you know, knobs and buttons to press and things.
1: Speaking of Texas, last time I saw Andy was in Texas, Mm -hmm. and I was walking, United Nations was playing, Mm -hmm. and someone was like, do you want to drive to the venue? I was like, nah, walk. Huh. And I was carrying, like, all my pedals on my guitar, drenched in sweat, and I ran into you, and you, like, helped me carry stuff to the show.
2: You looked like, um, the Texas heat didn't, was not something it's... <laughs> I, I
1: was probably dressed like this, yeah, all, black, all black. Yeah, you were all
2: black, it was, like, yeah. super hot, and your yeah. camera was geared, I was yeah. just like, that's like um, I feel like that's a, a species of animal that exists only in Austin. Yeah, like, only like during the, that week. Yeah, like, the, the northerner, or, <laughs> yeah. the, like, the Scandinavian that's yeah, yeah, there yeah, yeah. with, like, a thousand pedals, and it was, like, an all black, just, like, the, the doom metal band trying to get from, you know, one taco party to another. It's um, true, yeah. it's true.
3: I'll, I'll never forget that, yeah, so no, thank man, you. No. Yeah,
1: for sure. Have I've you help.
3: often been the um, the non-appropriately dressed person in hot weather, like yeah. a lot, in the South. That's no, happened to me quite a bit. For sure.
2: It is a skill set, and it took me a while growing up in Florida and living my entire life south of the Mason-Dixon line. It took me a long time to figure out how to dress for the Colts. Yeah,
3: once you got to Maryland, that must have been a little bit of a... Well, well, oh, and then now you got Minnesota Minnesota's, to Minnesota is a, a, a whole beast. another
2: level. Yeah, yeah Minnesota is another level. When, Maryland's still nice.
3: When you're doing
1: those, um, when you do the, the five topic things, I mean, are you, are you... When you hear them, are you like, okay, here's like a story arc or here's what I'm going to do. Like, how much of it is happening actually as it happens and how much is planned? Well, while I'm taking the topics, I'm starting to kind of
2: file things into like most important, least important okay. and like this will be the crux of the thing and this will be a thing that I just kind of pull in, you know, randomly as like a kind of passing by kind of character. But ultimately it's it's at a point now I've been rapping, you know, since I was 13 or 12, somewhere around there. So I've been rapping for 22, 23 years, you know. Um and uh it's at a point where it's just a, it's a it's like a second language. And that's kind of the best like analog to give is it's like it's like speaking extemporaneously in a second language when i started out i was just like you know like anyone learning spanish in sixth grade or whatever and you get to that point where you can you can you know ask for directions to the library or whatever Mm -hmm. you get to that point where you can order dinner and you get to that point where you can talk to people and then there's that sort of like magical last step influency where you can talk about kind of ephemeral concepts and speak extemporaneously you don't have to think about the words anymore and so now like rhyming is just like i don't have to think about the words like even like on that And that was one of the reasons that I stopped doing it so much because, like, I could really phone it in. Yeah. And, like, I didn't I – I got really sort of embarrassed that I found myself phoning it in. And so that's one of the reasons, like, if I'm just not feeling it, I'm not feeling it. Um, but, like, yeah, so it's, you know, it, it, there is a certain element of, like, improv in there. And there's a certain element of just, like, learning technical rap stuff. And ultimately, like, it, it's sort of like um, – like a chess player is able to see moves in advance and like the the more and more that i have done it the further in advance i can see and so i can be laying down one set of lines and sort of thinking of plot in advance as well too and then there's sometimes where it's like it's really calculated and i have to really think it through and i have to really kind of like you know f- work at it and then there's sometimes where it's just like i'm blacked out and i'm like going and like that's some of the most thrilling stuff for me when it feels there's times when it still feels magic to me um and those are rare those are rare birds but it it does happen still but most of the time it's sort of like um it's still a craft most of the time i'm still thinking mechanically
3: okay i remember getting into an argument with a bunch of people when that um the jay-z documentary came out like Mm -hmm. the fade the black one yep and i remember thinking you know i was already a musician by then and i'm like everyone's talking about yo it's crazy that he just steps into the box and like has these songs like yeah. and he just like spits them out of his head and i was always thinking that and i'm like I'm like this guy's been rapping like since he was a young guy i'm like that's what he does he's a professional rapper like there's no way he's stepping in there with, like, no idea, with none of this mapped out, with, like, none of these concepts, like, already, like, I was in the shower, like, a couple days ago, and I thought of something dope I'm going to, like, do. Yeah. Like, do you, like, as somebody who deals in that same exact, like, median, do you think he's really, like, going straight off the dome? No,
2: he is 100% not. And there's a mythology. (laughs) And, like, and there's, so he is essentially what a lot of people do, and, like, and it's something that... Um, and I, and I, not to discount, I'm not saying it like, I'm not dissing Jay-Z. Jay, <laughs> Jay you out there. If you're, you know,
3: Jay's a regular listener. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah if you're yeah, sitting on top yeah. of the
2: Barclays Center right now, <laughs> counting your money, um, I'm not dissing you. Um, no, you know, what he is most likely doing is he is, he has a bunch of chunks of things in his mind and he goes in and he freestyles sort of over a beat and they'll be like okay that chunk was great hmm. keep that chunk and then build off of that chunk okay cool that chunk was great build off of that chunk yeah, build off of that chunk yeah. which is a very like a lot of, like little Wayne does a lot of stuff like that and like ultimately it creates a um a, that's like basically birthed a lot of contemporary, what the contemporary sort of pop rap style is that's so loose and kind of flows and switches mm. styles really easily. Um, and I think it's great. I think it's super cool what rap has become sort of birthing off of that where it's less about calculation. It's less about thinking. It's more about like the sonic experience of like patterns and shapes of words. And to me, that's... Um, Uh, You know, I'm as a guy who grew up on worshipping New York underground, like, technical rap, um, I'm really bored with it. And so ultimately, it's super exciting to hear dudes that are rapping just for the sounds. Right. Like, Young Thug, it doesn't matter what Young Thug's saying. No one cares what Young Thug's saying. No one cares what Future's saying. It's about the patterns and the sounds. It's more
3: musical now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They're
2: just a guitar. And, like, they're just playing a bunch of solos. And, like, that's... It's the same... Rap, like, guitar nerd, like, you know, Steve Vai, Joe Satriani, like, culture is the same culture as, like, rap fan culture. Because it's like, I can't believe he did that. Like, it doesn't really matter what he's saying. There's no emotional connection to it. It's just pure technica. And it sounds dope. And, like, that's cool. That's super cool that that exists to me. But, yeah, Jay-Z is not, like, he's not just, like stepping out of his accountant's office and yeah, rolling straight into the like, booth and just boom. like yep yeah, done no yeah. it's it's a thing it's a process yeah
3: inter- oh I was, go ahead Um uh, so I was, it's interesting you brought up new york hip-hop because i had kind of that um that uh chiaroscuro music the other day <laughs> where i had listened to daily operation mm-hmm. which is like one of my favorite hip-hop records ever yeah, yeah. and that record is pretty much premiere yep. running like one straight beat one straight sample through the whole song yep. and guru just telling you a story yep which i fucking love yep you know and i love i need hip-hop to like paint me a bit of a picture and to sure. tell me a story for me to enjoy it a little more and then i found myself like lost for a long time yep maybe through like some point in the 90s to the early 2000s where I was like, there is nothing going on here that I like. And I was kind of turned off mm-hmm. to hip hop. And then I found myself just listening to the same shit. I just listened to Gangstar and Nas yep. and Eric B and Rakim, everything New York that I liked, and that's it. And then recently, like very recently, I found myself like going on Kendrick mm-hmm. and J. Cole, who were big rappers. This yep. is an underground stuff. Nope. But the one thing I'm really noticing about those records is they're like records. Yes. Like song to song to song has like different production. But basically the question I'm getting to is I feel like hip hop has now been around long enough. That guys like Kendrick are like pulling from different times and different sounds and like starting to create like a more masterful version To of- me,
2: this is the most exciting rap music has ever been. And I don't think it's a coincidence that you were turned off from rap music. Rappers were turned off from rap music right. for, for a stretch. Like, and, you know, there was always good stuff that was happening. But by and large, like, there was a period where, man, the good stuff was so few and far between, or the good stuff was just happening in one little area. Mm-hmm. And what's really cool to me about rap music right now, and, like, people, you know, rappers will want to argue with me about this forever, but, like... To me, what's so exciting is there's good stuff happening everywhere. Mm. And it's not just happening in New York or L.A. I'm not just even talking about that. It's not just the difference between pop and underground. It's like there are cool indie rappers right now. There are cool pop rappers right now. There are cool, like, Young Thug and Future are making some of the most interesting rap music out there right now. But at the same time, you have future on a vince staples record which is a super thoughtful intricate amazing album and then you have kendrick coming out the fact that kendrick could put out pimple butterfly which is a strange record it's interesting it's a super interesting record it's a super dynamic record it's not a traditional rap record it's not a pop rap record you could have that record come out and the world stopped Mm -hmm. and then you have someone like beyonce who is essentially looking to dudes like kendrick right now and made her record she would not have made that record if it wasn't for people like kendrick making those records because that like those are the
3: gatekeepers to a lot of stuff yeah he's like the radio head of hip hop yeah and what's super cool to me is that that exists and at the same
2: time too you have like some of the most interesting rap music isn't coming it's coming from everyone's checking for the Skepta record from London that's coming right now there's really exciting stuff happening in France and then America like there's a group of kids in Minneapolis right now that are all like 17 to 22 that are like Used to be Spooky Black is now named Corbin. Alan Kingdoms and all the, uh, the he's on Kanye stuff all the time. Bobby Raps is writing stuff for tons of rappers. He's on a bunch of stuff, and it's like these kids are like. There's the same things happening in Miami right now with um, uh, Kodiak Black and uh, Denzel Curry. Like there's these pockets of places that are happening where shit is happening in different places. And what's really cool about it too is it's like uh, it, for a while the realm of avant garde rap music was sort of like owned by. L.A., Bay Area, and then weirdo white art dropouts. Right. And that's not the case anymore. And for a while, like, the super good, like, pop rap was just owned by New York and L.A., and that's Mm -hmm. not the case anymore. And for a while, rap was just owned by America, and that's not the case anymore. And what's really cool is it's, yeah, it's getting old enough that it's starting to really stratify in the way that rock did, where you can look like... It feels to me, like, rap feels to me like what rock was going through just at the rise of like American indie when you still had cool bands from the grunge era and you still, and you had all these great bands like coming off of K records and kill rock stars and levels like that. Where you had this incredible sort of strata of music in rock that kind of you, if you wanted rock music with a, you know, with a Victrola, you know, sample played backwards, you could always go to neutral milk hotel. Right, like yeah. these things were there for everybody. Yeah. And that's where rap music is right now. And to me, it's the, best time for rap music it's the best and i yeah. as a result like i spent years pushing my own rap music away from rap music and putting in banjos and hammond organs and like giant you know gang vocals and stuff and i this is the reason my latest record is quite essentially the, the first rap record i've ever made because in the last two years i've completely fallen back in love with rap music hmm. i really am excited about it again i'm excited about just rapping um which is a thing that like i had after I made mean, my previous record, which is kind of the most rap record I had made at the time, I was thinking my, my next record is not going to have any rap on it.
3: So and you then, feel like you dabbed outside of the box with your music because you were like a little not ashamed, but just like bored. you didn't just didn't want to work in that hip hop. Yeah, format. the
2: construct and the other thing too with rap is rap is a. F- is and i don't mean this in pejorative sense but rap is a fat is fad music rap and that's what makes rap exciting is that rap changes so quickly mm. it changes so much faster and it, be- it can too because it's technical things because it's mostly made inside of a box you know and so it changes so much faster than every other genre and that's uh, you know with the possible exception in dance music and that's why dance music is starting to supersede rap music but like that's why you know if if one dude comes with a cool style future comes out with like Dirty Sprite 3 and then now you get Designer and then you're going to get all these like future trickle offs. They're all going to have a hit around it for a year mm-hmm. and then someone else is going to pop up and make the next Dirty Sprite 3 and they're going to have all these people trickling off of that. And so it's like you can like if you're if you're really nerdy about rap music, you could listen to just like some dumb unknown rapper from, you know, wherever the fucking Virginia, you know, and you could probably pick the year it was made. Based on who they're ripping off, mm. and so at the time, like the sort of like when you make rap, you, you still do have to kind of function in a like a lexicon a little bit, and the the lexicon of rap was really boring to me. And what was really exciting to me um, was everything else, like all the bands that I was seeing on the Warp tour were exciting to me. Like all of this, like you know, you started to get um, really super exciting stuff happening in electronic music and things like that, and that all became way more interesting to me. And so I started pulling away from rap music and I had to been rapping for a long time you know it's like someone who's just been doing guitar solos for 10 years decides all of a sudden they want to make a folk record or whatever that's right. why you know every old rock and roller eventually starts making Americana music you know <laughs> um,
1: speaking of Americana so how did the Bonnie Ver thing come out and you and sort of how did that kind of transition because I know you, you kind of recorded this new record in mm-hmm. his studio as well so I met Justin in 2010 which
2: is the summer that I was went I was going to Minneapolis all the time that year and that was the when i went to his house and met him um that was when i decided i was gonna move there like that trip and was I, that
1: before he had blown up or was that it was sort of, of right in between then, so i listened okay. to
2: like demos of the um the big record it was like in the process of demoing that big record or yeah, recording that big record and i went out there and we it was his brother's birthday it was fourth of july and I had a bunch of people over and we're all hanging out and it's sort of the end of the night and it was one of those things that was like it's like 30 musicians out of this house in the country. And so we're all like wasted out of our minds. And then inevitably people start just fooling around and making music and jamming. And there's tons of recording equipment and tons of instruments. And like, so then they were fooling around. And then my buddy Ryan Olson, who was in the band Jason Feathers with me and uh, Justin, um, was just like, Andy, you got, you got a freestyle. Freestyle for And so I was like, you know, sure, whatever. I'm just drunk enough to, to not be embarrassed. <laughs> and like, um, and so I was freestyle for everybody. And like, it was one of those things where I'm just like rapping and so they're quiet, and I kind of like open my eyes, and there's like 25 people all watching me all of a sudden. <laughs> and so like after that, like I, I kind of made an impression, and um, Justin and I kind of hit it off and became good friends. And He was at my—I was living in this crappy little house that um, burned down a little while later, but like he came about to buy weed from a roommate, and we were shooting the shit, and we were talking about how both of us are pretty meticulous people when it comes to making a record, and how making a record for us isn't necessarily fun it's uh, challenging and it's rewarding, but like if we lose sleep and anybody's made a record knows that feeling yeah. like where it's like, it's sort of a nightmare. A lot of times uh, yeah, I'm
3: not a happy guy. In the no, studio. I'm a
2: miserable dude yeah. when I'm making a record and Same. ultimately I fucking love it. I, it's like sure. solving a math problem or something. It's a great yeah. challenge, but it burns your brain out. And like, we were talking about this and he had, at that point in time, Bonnie Bear had become what Bonnie Bear is. Um, I had, you know, my, I had been touring my record for a while, and we were sort of on a little bit of a break, both of us. And he was just like, "Man, I got some new synthesizers and weird effects." processors "You want to come out of my house and just fuck around, and work on music?" And just in a way that, like, we never intended to release anything. It was just like, "Let's drink some fucking whiskey and fuck around and work on music." And he brought my buddy Ryan Olson out, and then Sean Carey, who plays drums for Bonnie Bear. And then this guy B.J. Burton, who's a really great engineer, and we just basically just pounded through bottles of Red Breast and um, (laughs) made what we thought was like, cool, this is it. This is great. This is perfect. And then we listened to it like a week later, and we were like, this is definitely not perfect. But there's something there. (laughs) So over the course of the year, we just sort of worked on that whenever we could, like within and around tours and other jobs and stuff. And so, um, and eventually finished that record. And the whole intent of that record was like that, was like, it should always be fun. Like if we're not having fun, if there's something that's not fun, then fucking don't do it. And it, you know, and it was never like, a, "What are people going to think of this?" It was always just like, "This sounds awesome to us," and go from there. And as a result, it was I never had had fun making a record before. It hmm. was the first time I'd ever had fun making a record. It was the least stressful. It was super exciting, and it was just like get drunk and freestyle for eight hours and then piece together. And like that was where I actually first time I started writing stuff in that sort of Jay Z manner, where I'd freestyle uh-huh. like three or four takes and then take the best pieces and kind of assemble it into a thing um and so
3: take a good part that you thought was cool and then try to like yeah take a good part so what i would that. basically
2: do is like and the first day i was there i freestyle for about eight hours straight and just like freestyle you play me a beat i freestyle for like i'll do like four or five takes on it they give me notes do a couple more takes on it move on do the same thing move on do the same thing move on and like song i would like set dibs on a song and be like no you can't touch that i want to listen to it tomorrow because i know there's something in there and i want to edit it myself And And how much
3: do you trust other people in that process, like the people in the room of like what's good and bad?
2: So the nature of Oregon, we just talk about Ryan Olson for a second. Ryan Olson created the band Gangs. He essentially created the band Polisa, and he's responsible for a ton of other projects. He's like a man, very quietly, uh, one of the more important music producers, I think, going right now, but doesn't take credit for anything and really hides his face a lot of times. Hmm. But Ryan is the kind of dude, like I used to live around the corner from him. He would call, he was always working on like 20 projects at any given time. And he would like call me at like four in the morning. and be in bed and be like, What are you doing right now? I'm like, I had nothing. He'd be like, Come on, over, I'm just, I'm just freestyling this thing. I'm like, No, Ryan, I'm fucking in bed. No, i just, get the fuck up. Come on over. It's <laughs> like so ride my bike over there. And like, like 10 seconds later, there's a bottle of whiskey in my hand. And I'm just like, drinking and like <laughs> he'll just play a beat and he'll be like i'll freestyle over it once and be like okay i'll do it slower and i want just to talk about this like, like this cool guy. and then i'll be like freestyle once and be like okay now uh, let's switch it up a little bit and maybe like uh the way the pattern you're doing on this part kind of do that for the whole thing I'll do that one time and you go okay cool next beat and i'm like you just plow through beats and halfway through you'd be like what is this for yeah <laughs> and he's also in this band called marijuana death squads i did a song for with for them with um this channy who's leading her police and like it came out, like, I had no idea, I don't even remember recording it, um, and then it came out, and then because she's really big, her band's really big in the UK, like, it was, like, being played on, like, every BBC radio station, wow. like, it was the fucking dumbest, I was, like, wasted out of my mind <laughs> rapping about, about, like, girls running their hands through my hair, like, it was the dumbest, it's the most <laughs> ignorant shit, and, like, but that was, that's the process with him, It's like, you don't work with him if you don't just let him do what he yeah, wants, yeah, yeah. and so that was the process of that whole thing, which is, like, and then ultimately, we would all, like, he would play, you would Do a bunch of shit. Then I'd go outside and just kind of walk in the woods or goof the fuck off or like, you know, play video games or watch movies. He would work. Then we'd come back down and listen. Then we'd give notes and kind of go back and forth like that. Um, And then, you know, as the night progressed on and on and on, we'd all get more drunk and just stupid. And that was some of the kind of the most magical thing. But that was the beauty of it. It was like, I've never been in a band. Um, I've always been, it's, you know, sort of a benevolent dictator when I work on my own music, you know. And I work with a lot of people. I collaborate with a lot of people, but ultimately the decision falls to me. Um, And that was my first time really doing anything like that. And, It was a joy. It was the most fun in the world. Um, And, you know, you just go back. It was – you're working with people that, like, everybody respected each other. Everybody really admired each other's work. And it was just really easy. And Mm -hmm. the other thing, too, is it was low stakes. It wasn't like none of us needed it. None of us were, like, burning for it, like, to be popular. Like, it was not – there was no – there's no concern about that on any front. Um, I, you know, with that being said, I wish more people had heard it. I'm really proud of that record. I think it's one of the best things I've done. Um, and but you know, it, it it was a process. I've never experienced any process like that. And then so when it came to my, my current record, Justin was really kind enough to offer up a studio and a lot of other stuff to make the, my record happen. And so I wanted to make the record in that studio i wanted to kind of i um, was chasing that dragon at that point and so the guy who works on all my records john congleton i uh, worked on my last three um he came up to fall creek wisconsin and we just um yeah 10 days of recording out there um and working with some of the same people working with some of bonnie bear's people working with some of his pe- john's people from texas and working some of my own people um and it was a similar like the first time it wasn't as fun, you know, it certainly wasn't as fun, but it was the closest one of my own records had come to being fun to track. And there was very little stress in it as a result. And I think it was something about, you know, just being in the same place and kind of having, a, you know, the placebo effect of, of environment or whatever, making but, it all seem a lot more relaxed.
1: What was the deal with, because I remember I was hanging with Mike Wiebe a couple mm-hmm. years ago and he was like, dude, you won't believe what Andy's doing. He's got some hookup with Harley Davidson. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like just riding this motorcycle all over the US. And I remember we're friends on Instagram yeah, yeah. and like, Every time I went on Instagram, it was, like, this beautiful motorcycle in front of mountains. <laughs> and, like, I was like, what is going on?
2: So, out of the blue, this is the probably the craziest thing that's ever happened to me. I was riding, I was on tour with this band Y, and we were busting our ass from L.A. to get to South by Southwest. And on the drive from South by Southwest, I was, like, asleep in the back of the van, and my manager's, like, yelling, like, Andy, check your phone! <laughs> like, and I, like, wake up, and I look at my phone, and it's from the guy that was working my PR at the time, and he was like, do you, like motorcycles and i was like i mean, i like mo- i'm a guy like some motorcycles are <laughs> yeah, cool. cool and i was like i thought you know i thought i've definitely you know i'm a guy so i'm going i mean i was in my 30s at that point in time so i definitely thought maybe i should get a motorcycle you know <laughs> like i've had that thought and i know what a motorcycle looks like i know a thing or two about motorcycles but speaking like
3: speaking of wind blowing through your hair yeah yeah no
2: definitely just like this the first like um Pre-pubescent midlife crisis (laughs) waves starting to wash through my body. Um, Like you know, I'm starting to like enjoy the company of like hanging out with kids, and I'm thinking about a wife and a motorcycle. That's the process of like being 32 or whatever. Yeah, totally. (laughs) And so I got this email, and Harley Davidson had contacted my uh, PR guy and asked um, if I wanted to be a part of a marketing campaign um, where I went around and with a bunch of other dudes that were all doing sort of things interesting in their field in an independent way. And we would go around on these trips with them, and they would teach us about motorcycles, teach us how to ride a motorcycle. And then uh, in the end, we would get to design and build our own Harley-Davidson, and they would give it to us. And that was our payment. And I said, well, yeah, duh, of course. Um, And it was – well, first of all, I mean, I was living – is the nicest thing that I own. It's still the nicest thing that I own. I don't own a car. I live in a studio apartment. I have a laptop and I have a motorcycle. Like this is the this is the extent. I have a pretty. I have a moderately nice bicycle. Like and I have some cool jeans. Like this is pretty much. That's the liquid assets of astronauts. And I own gold teeth. I have sev- a couple of sets of gold teeth. I, this is the all of my liquid assets. But ultimately, all of those assets added together are still not as nice as the motorcycle that I own. And so they gave me this motorcycle. And I like. I don't think out of the five. that really took to it there was a mma fighter this really great pro skater named greg lutzka really great illustrator this photographer um and me oh yeah me um me and the pro skater are the only dudes that really really got into it like really got into it and he and i know ride all the time um and so as a result like yeah i got to do this and they would just kind of fly me all over and we would ride motorcycles and um now i have a harley davidson and that's pretty much all i do when i'm not on tour or when i'm not recording or anything it's pretty much all i do and it's all i want to do and now i have a second motorcycle i bought a dirt bike that i'm my buddy is uh, rebuilding and yeah that's all i want to do how so. does
1: how does someone who like isn't an expert on motorcycles go about designing your own harley that looks cool <laughs> yeah. yeah i call so i called my
0: i call I
2: call my, I call my friends i have friends who rode motorcycles that were harley dudes and they were like you know you're There's a limit, you know, on what you could do to build it. Basically, you're working within Harley's own parts and customizations. And, like, I was was like, this is what I can do. This is my budget. What should I do? And they were like, honestly, it's not enough to, like, go crazy and really change the whole thing. Just get what's cool looking. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, cool, awesome. And so I got it. Like, everyone got theirs black. I got mine, like, gold, like, flake, like a bass boat. Like, it's, like, ridiculous. It's so cool. And the funny thing is, is, like, um, nothing like that, like... A lot of musicians get a lot of free stuff, like I'm not at South by Southwest collecting glasses and jeans like that doesn't happen for me, but I got like the most awesome free thing ever, and I asked him like how why me <laughs> like i'm I got fans, but I'm not like gonna boost sales, you know like I'm not really moving the needle that much like I got fans, but I'm not like huge, and they said they have all this they had this marketing company this is a, I didn't know this existed, and this is a really interesting thing to me, and maybe to other people has marketing company that has All these like proprietary tools um, that like crawls the web and they picked from these like web crawlers. They narrowed down these like musicians social media like feeds and then started attaching things to our feeds specifically and following us and they could follow everything that I posted. Everyone that responded to my posts, how they responded to my posts, how I responded to their response, the tone, like, positive, oh, negative. Shit. Then they could respond, like, they could follow how long people, like, how much people clicked on things that I posted, how long they spent on my posts. Really? And they were looking at artists that were way bigger than me. Um, like, I got drunk with the people from the marketing company, like, and I'm just, like, picking their brain about it. It was super fascinating. They were looking at artists that were way bigger than me, and they said, oh, "I don't know, but why me? Are we talking like a bot?
3: Like this yeah. is a program? These that's are programs that they, they run this, yeah, and then yeah, it gives yeah. them
2: analytics. Right. And so essentially, what they they said, like they were like, yeah, there was a lot of artists that had more followers than you, that like would get more retweets and things like that. But ultimately, everything like my what they deduced from the entire process is that my fan base was." would look at everything I posted. Mm. Everybody that followed me would look at everything that I posted and they would click on it. They would actually look at it. They would spend time at it. And the other thing they said is that like, when they would write me, they would always write me super excited. And I always write them super excited. This is all of no calculation of my own. This yeah. is just that I'm a super excited dude and I <laughs> like things. And they were like, basically long and short of it is like, we picked you because you're a nice guy and everybody likes you. And I was like, and they're like, congratulations for being a nice guy all your life. And I was like, ah, here's a motorcycle. Wow. Super Finally. Finally, I like, fucking <laughs> nice guys fucking finish first. But yeah, it was crazy to me. I didn't know anything like that existed. And what's that's how um if you're wondering how bands get picked for things like that, that there's several companies that are doing things mm. like this. This is how bands get picked like that. They have they have a team of team of robots that are crawling through the internets, all through the tubes of the internets, and analyzing everything and figuring it out. And that blew my fucking mind and now I'm super obsessed with the idea of like internet analytics. It's
3: really interesting, actually. And it's making me think about Because like, there we there's like a big I don't know if you're a sports fan at all. Very big. But there's, you know, this battle in a lot of sports yeah. between the new school of analytics and the old school of the eye test kind of.
2: Yeah. I'm a baseball guy, and so that's okay, it's so no you, more heated than where so you in know baseball. all about it. Yeah.
3: So, but the thing that these advanced analytics find are things your eyes don't find, yep. you know what I mean? It shows, you know, uh, this guy's range goes half an inch farther this way than another guy, or something like that, and all of a sudden you're starting to see value in smaller things than a home run or yep. something like that, and it almost seems comparable to me in the way that like the home run would be like a million followers yep but like the the defensive shift going half an inch that way would be like this unique experience with your fans with this that you wouldn't be able to like quantify before and i
2: think that that was the thing that they like yeah and that's the thing that's super amazing to me about it is like it fucking worked. Like, they gave me a motorcycle, and I, like, not only do I love motorcycles, I love Harley Davidsons. Like, yeah. I am fully drinking the Kool-Aid on it, and, like, I ride my motorcycle everywhere, and I want some American freedom, riding through the fucking yeah. Rockies, taking pictures. Like, I'm on that shit. They
3: totally... And Skynet knew you would. Yeah, they knew, yeah. They, they knew I would. They knew
2: I would, not have to go oh, back to the future
3: Hulk, and to high-five
1: in. my past <laughs> self to be like, it's going to be so tight. Maybe when they put those, that steel in your head, they implanted something. They planted Uh-oh. a chip, and
2: they just activated, yeah. like, I mean... American Freedom
1: Motorcycle Dream
3: yeah. activate. <laughs> yeah, like, totally. I'm like fine with weird, that, though. I'm cool with it. Peter Fonda fantasy. Just yeah, man, the, head, the like,
1: singularity yeah. is occurring <laughs> in my forehead and on my hog.
3: <laughs> I love that. That's so amazing.
1: Uh, another thing I want to talk about I did the bio for your new record. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done bounce for both your records, not a big deal. Yeah, I think just, both for side one. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, yeah. All right. Hey, man, what a family right here. <laughs> um, but I remember us talking about Cut the Body Loose mm-hmm. and all that stuff, and I never knew about any of that stuff, mm-hmm. and I thought it was so interesting. I was wondering if you could maybe just sort of summarize that and maybe how it relates to the new record.
2: Yeah, sure. So, like, I... Um I, and as you know, um, I tour a lot, um, more than most bands, and I tour in a lot of places that people don't go. I Mm -hmm. go to Central Europe and Eastern Europe, and I don't even go, I'll go to major cities, but also play like tiny Slovak villages and weird like towns in Romania that no American band has ever been to. Part of that is I have really great people that can get me shows like that, and part of that is I just want to go to those places. And there's no money in a lot of those shows. You go there because you want to go there. Um, and so, as a result of this like weird touring life that I have, I've gotten exposed to a lot of things um that you don't see in America, and it's a really not to get super heavy, but it's a really weird time to be alive, and I think it's a very difficult time to sort of process all the information that we're being given sure um and most specifically, I think like um we're Never before as a like a, as a humanity have we been more in tune with the worldwide like web of suffering for sure. Um, and I think it's a and I think honestly you know we could really wax philosophical about this and shoot from the hip, but I think it's something that we're not like we haven't evolved to deal with yet emotionally. Like um, there's a lot of reading that I did into this about like the idea of like our brains are still um, there's a lot that determines our brain's capacity for socializing and it's based on. Um, uh, old, like, herd mentality. We could be able to really calculate and quantify information for X number of amount of people, and that X number of amount of people is a very specific number that relates back to sort of pre-humans. Mm. Um, and with that being said, like, we're now being forced to deal with the information and the suffering and joy and 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 emotion and reality of, of billions of people on a very personal level. Mm-hmm. It's not even like reading a newspaper back in the 50s and you'd be like, you know, something terrible has happened in Laos. And you go, oh, yeah. something terrible is happening now. Like, and now. Now you're, you're watching it. it. Now you're watching it. You're hearing interviews with Ugh. it. You're listening to podcasts yeah, sure. about it. Um, you're seeing people tweet about it. Everyone's changing their, you know, their avatar to a flag or whatever the hell. And so it's immersive. And it becomes like you can't help but be emotional about sure. these things. Even though they have literally no impact on your life directly. And...
3: Well, they do because of exactly the it's, emotional response. Yes, and they do it yeah. in this
2: in completely different way. And so, I started to kind of really think about this and like kind of quantify like how how do you find joy and happiness and stability inside of this sort of new paradigm? And I was looking to places like when I would go play in places like Slovakia, or Romania. Like, played Romania, we're playing like an abandoned movie theater, and like most of the people there are like sixteen year old. Like probably two thirds of them are girls because everyone that's old enough to leave Bistritza, Romania, has fucking left like as fast as they could, mm-hmm. and so it's like you're playing this abandoned movie theater on like a PV like stick PA like for a bunch of you know tweens because that's the scene there and like but you know and and still they're trying to make it happen like they're mm-hmm. they're not giving up and I started to see all these examples of people like in really legitimate struggles trying to find joy and try to find happiness and you know in the meantime you know i would see like me and my friends like sort of be like well nothing's going on tonight like like what a fucking asshole thing to say living in the in the glory that we have so all this is sort of, like, kind of ruminating in my brain, and I was trying to think of, like, how you get to this point. Like, I was looking at people that are literally going through ridiculous amounts of suffering. People that are our age that have survived Civil War, like, that are still plugging along and still, like, get—they survived Civil War, and their first thought is, we need some punk shows. Like, that's a fucking crazy concept. Mm. And through all of this, through going to New Orleans a lot, uh, New Orleans after Katrina a lot, I kind of became super obsessed with New Orleans and— um uh I learned about, like, I started reading into the ritual of, like, New Orleans Jazz Funeral and a lot of rituals, just sort of that sort of thing, grief rituals. And one of the really th- interesting, the, and to me, the most interesting moment in a New Orleans Jazz Funeral and the ritual of it is is this moment, it's called cutting the body loose. And in a jazz funeral, like, there's the actual funeral in the church, and then the body is picked up in the coffin and carried out of the church. The funeral uh, party comes out with the body. And the pallbearers in the coffin go out first, and the, and the funeral comes out, and then there's a band waiting. And when the body comes out, um, the band starts playing funeral dirges. Um, a bunch of old hymns, super slow, plodding music, and they very slowly, the entire team, the band, the pallbearers, the coffin, the body, and the funeral party all walk very slowly, soundtrack to these dirges, to the graveyard. Sometimes it's in a car, sometimes it's in a horse drawn carriage, but most of the time it's carried. And however long that is, maybe it's a mile, maybe it's 100 yards, but they do that, and either it goes right to the grave, sometimes it goes to the funeral gates, but essentially it goes kind of takes the same sort of metaphorical journey. And that journey is a very, like, emotive, cathartic experience, weeping, super heavy experience, and then there's a point where he, it, the body reaches its the gates or the grave or wherever, and this is where you cut the body loose. And at that point, the body and the in the coffin and the pallbearers go on to the grave, and go on to actually bury the body. And the rest of the funeral procession, the family isn't there to see the body go in the ground. They aren't there to see the body go in the sarcophagus or whatever, or the tomb or whatever. The family continues on, and the band continues on. And when you cut the body loose, it's when the music changes from the dirge to and the saints go marching in. Mm. And this is when the procession ceases to be a funeral procession, it becomes a party, it becomes a second line, and it becomes it's just party down the street. And people, strangers join in. Everyone just starts dancing and it becomes this like dance party down the street and through New Orleans. And that was such an interesting like idea of like grief ritual and coping. But then also just like um, the concept of like feeling such sadness and feeling such sorrow and feeling such pain and you get to that point where you go and this is the time that we stop being sad Mm. and making it a deliberate action to stop being sad, to stop being kind of crushed under the weight of the thing and go, cool, now we move on. And that was a such a like a that resounded to me in so many ways in like dealing with my own problems and my own sadness and my own just kind of day to day anxiety and just making like you have to actively decide at one point, cool, I'm not gonna do this anymore. And it's like, you know, some people could look at that as like repression and I don't think that it is. I think it's survival at a lot of times. Sure. And I see a lot of people in places in my travels in really adverse conditions making an active determination to not they they could allow themselves to be crushed under the weight of their situation, and they don't they go on and they go on and they throw shows or they fall in love or they make dance music or whatever the fuck they start a you know weird gypsy klezmer band and they fucking hitchhike around Europe like you know what they all find a thing and they decide to not be sad anymore
3: how inside of that concept though do you ensure the fact that you 're not carrying scars that are going to come to pass again so, to say like you can make this determination that, that I'm over this thing mm-hmm. but how do you um, actively know you're not just putting something to the side rather than dealing with it
2: well I think you got to look at it like it's not um, putting it to the side but accepting it as your new reality like this is your new reality and you can't be afraid of it but you have to understand that you can't let it win either mm. and so like this is a sort of through a complete other happenstance I've done. All, I've been lately doing a lot of stuff um, thanks to our friend David Lewis doing stuff about like uh, mental health issues in music and stuff Just being on panel discussions and talking to a lot of people about that sort of thing and like ultimately like the core of every solution to mental health issues at the core of it is talking about it mm. like there's a lot of other things and there's a lot of other theories that branch out in different directions but everyone has this one core that is talking about the thing and, and to me like that's your safeguard. Like, it's not repression. It's not ignoring it didn't happen. It's accepting that it happened. It's deciding that it's not going to make you sad anymore and you're going to talk about it. Openly, mm. and I think the I think where you run the risk is that when you when you let it crush you, and then you don't talk about it. Mm. Like a lot of times, it crushes you so hard that you can't talk about it anymore. And so that's to me, that's the fucking dangerous shit. Sure, um, it's not dangerous to like just make an active choice towards happiness. And I think happiness is an active choice; it's an activity. Um, and, I, and I and I think that you know in that framework, then you can find the the strength to sort of you know kind of deal with the problems as well. And I'm not like. <laughs> I'm not on some like smiley t-shirt fucking let's all do yoga and deal with our fucking serious heavyweight problems. But it's just um, you get to a point where you, uh, you know, this is the stuff that I've learned from the world that I've seen.
3: You got to get to a a point in your life where you learn how to cope with these things because they're not going to not happen. No. And they start happening with more frequency. It's like the older you get, the more more people people die. die. Man, Man,
2: I had three people die in a month last year. Boom, 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 boom. And I didn't deal with it until the last one. And boy, oh, boy, it dealt with me. Like it was (laughs) a solid 24 hours of like uncontrollable weeping. Yeah. And that was a super real thing. And I'm glad it went that way. I'm glad I learned. I'm glad that I was able to do that. Um, But that's a real, it's a real thing. And it gets... It gets more and more real. <laughs> the older you get, yeah. it's fucking life comes hard, man. <laughs> yeah, comes real hard because hard in the pain
3: gets damn complicated. Yeah, man. It? Totally. Ooh, shit totally. Ain't easy. Shit ain't easy. <laughs> I have a totally separate question that I don't know if you've been asked it a lot, <laughs> and you may have because you're a white rapper. Go for it. But it's something as a hip hop fan, I struggle with a lot. Yep. And I can seldom get an answer to because it's an inappropriate question to a black guy. Um, is like <laughs> the fact that I hate the N word. Mm-hmm. Let's just put that out there now. Mm-hmm. Like I was raised New York, liberal mm-hmm. Jews. You could have said fuck a thousand times in my house. If you said that, no fucking good. You would have gotten yep. the book, the belt, like whatever, for like sure, fucked for sure. up for saying that. Now I've never, I've always understood the empowerment of the word. Mm-hmm. But then I'm actually more empathetic to the side that wants to put the word to rest. Mm-hmm. When the NAACP like, actually had a, a fucking burial service for yeah, that yeah, word, yeah, I, remember that, yeah. I was actually like, good, I'll good, leave. I want it to go away so bad. Yep. Now, the thing I struggle with a lot now is, let's say, for instance, um, a couple years ago, uh, the J. Cole record, Born Center came out, mm-hmm. and then a new Cormega record came out at the same time. <laughs> And what a pair! Yeah, exactly. And like, I listened to both these records incessantly where I could sing along to these mm-hmm. records. And I found myself in this weird thing, the Cormega record. I'm flying. I'm spitting mm-hmm. along with them yep. and I'm having fun. The J Cole record. I'm censoring myself yep. every fucking 20 seconds where I like literally can't even like expressively emote the music with him Yep. because of that. Yeah. Now, I would have no issue with it whatsoever if I wasn't supposed to be buying this record. But I am. And they're making a conscious effort to market to white people and to market to this side of things. But then you're also spewing out something you don't want people to say back. And fundamentally, I've never known where to sit on this issue. I've always kind of taken a back seat as a white guy being like, you know what? I'm not going to say the word not my conversation to have but because of my love for this kind of music i find myself crossed and i just i'm wondering your thoughts about it
2: yeah i mean it's a super i'm not going to be able to clear up your your mind on it unfortunately (laughs) it's i mean it's a super contradictory and controversial thing and part of me um as like a as a guy who's an academic to a degree there's part of me that is super against censorship of any kind and like the you know the guy that recently re- is starting is on this crusade to republish all of mark twain's literature with the removal of the n-word like part of me as a historian as a, someone who loves history feels like that's fucking terrible because right. you're like changing you're changing history at this point in time. We're whitewashing history now. J Cole is not history not yet, mm-hmm. but I, there is that is a super conflicting thing, and it's a weird thing that is divided. You're going to hear a different response, of course, based on race. Um, you're going to hear white people that are going to say absolutely not ever, and I have white people, white friends, white rappers, friends that will say absolutely not ever, and then people who are like, yeah, whatever. And then you have black people that are going to have both the same view. There's a lot of black people that I know that are just like, whatever, man, it's it's the fucking lyric, yeah. But at the same time, you're going to have a, a generational divide too. Mm-hmm. Um, that word is, in my experience and understanding. And granted, I am a middle-aged white guy,
1: close to middle-aged white guy. Not quite. We're not I'm quite a, there. Yeah. I'm yet. teetering
2: on the edge yeah, of middle-aged. Yeah, yeah. I am upper, lower, middle-aged.
3: Again, there, fellas.
2: Uh, we're getting school.
3: <laughs> we're in weird. the middle of like a below-average life. I mean, it all depends. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah that's true. <laughs> exactly. That's it's true. true. Like, that's we've true. all done enough touring yeah. that, like. Post-70 might not happen. It's, so we're middle-aged. We're, we're middle aged. Really yeah. about middle-aged. Age. Okay. Okay. okay, cool. We're in the framework. In music years, we're middle-aged.
2: <laughs> there's, a, there's a different relationship to it generationally, too. Mm. Like, it's such an interesting... Man, oh man. Man, oh man. Just start, like, scrolling through social media. And if you fall down a social media wormhole, or, like, you're looking at, like, world star hip-hop vines, and you see a bunch of, like, you'll see... White kids just throwing that word around like it ain't mm-hmm. no thing. And like, I grew
3: up with kids like that. Well, just, I grew up in the South.
2: And yeah. like you, I would see, like I have been called that word by tons of my black friends before. Tons, tons, tons of times. And you will see white kids that just use it flippantly with black friends back and forth. It is, my feeling on all of this always is, it's always contextual. It's always a case-by-case situation. And it's always about, like, manners and public decency. Mm. And Um, intent, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, just because you say those words in the J. Cole song when you're in your shower does not make you a racist. It makes (laughs) you a guy that likes the song. Like, uh, there are people who disagree with me on that, and they are absolutely right to disagree with me. And, of course, like, I, as a, like, Again, 34-year-old, <laughs> like, middle class, like, lower middle class white dude in America. Like, I am the least, like, allowed to make a judgment on this. But ultimately, at the end of the day, in my opinion, from where I stand and from most people I talk to, it's intent. It's intent, it's a context, all that stuff. Like, and I'm really, its a really curious time for a relationship with words. And if someone really loves words, it's a really interesting thing to see. Like, and it's, what's really crazy is to go overseas— and to talk to like my black friends in England who like think it's hilarious that we care about this, uh, but it's also because this country didn't have they, they don't have. have the relationship that yeah, we have, like, not, right, like yeah. and so it's, and so it's very easy for them to say that like the French French black people are like what <laughs> like who cares like fuck those racist assholes anyway right. it's just a word and like it's super interesting like. Um, like a lot of times when I talk about race in America, I have to make a sort of caveat that like, now look, granted, I have to make that caveat that I made. Like I'm a I'm a white dude, and when I make that like caveat, when I like I worked on this like performance art piece, and the entire in London, the entire crew was black women and me. And every day after we're done working, we're hanging out, we're talking about politics, talk about race, talk about art, all these things, and we talk about like you know you know all these issues. And every time I would make that caveat, and they're like, you your opinion is something that you're entitled to. You don't have to make that like that caveat with us. That's stupid. Hmm. And that's the thing that you have to do sort of as politeness in America. Sure. And so our relationship to the, to that word and to race, is in a, it's, it's in a weird middle state. And it's really interesting to see um, just from a historical standpoint. And then it's really fucking complex and upsetting from just like a personal standpoint. And so like, hey man. So no answer. So you no would, answer. Say, you no, would say the true. answer yeah.
1: isn't black and white. Yes. Oh, oh. oh got it. damn yeah. you're good. Damn you're good, John.
2: Uh,
3: Woo! Oh
2: boy. That was <laughs> post racial puns,
1: man. You I did mean, it. Yeah.
3: So good. Uh, that you're was, so that good was, at it. That
1: was really good. That means a lot All right. coming from you. Yeah, man. All right. a, that's, so that's mad heavy, <laughs> what we were just
3: talking about. That okay. should real. <laughs> Too heavy, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, so it was good it
3: was Let's talk about something fun. Yes. Okay. So yesterday, Hillary Clinton oh says, "No, this is fun, <laughs> go on, go fun Hillary it. Clinton oh, news, good. Okay, well, that's never I know. said before. Odd thing <laughs> oxymoron, and she says, "If I become president, oh yeah, this... all all documents that wouldn't infringe national security." for UFOs and alien cases will be declassified. Well, you
2: can believe that because she clearly doesn't give a shit about what's classified.
3: Ah, good point. I mean... For this one, though, I mean, tell me, like, like, 100,000 Trump supporters who don't watch Ancient Aliens didn't perk up their ears and go...
1: Well, I just interviewed Tom DeLong Mm -hmm. about aliens. He's an alien guy. Yeah, he just read the 700-page book about all this stuff. And to me, it's like... I don't think, I think she can say that. I think if there's like real, real info they have, they're still not going to release still it.
3: Still can't do it. It's well, going
1: to be a bunch of... Weather like,
3: balloons still. Yeah. Ultimately, it is...
2: This is, the and not to again get too heavy, but I'm completely disenfranchised with government right now. And ultimately, even political, like even candidates that I like are saying shit that is absolutely false. Because oh, yeah. right. like, we all forget that there are two other parts to our system, one of which is real belligerent right now in our <laughs> Congress and Senate, the House and Senate. And like those two other parts have a say in all of these things, even though executive action has become real fucking rampant. She can say that shit all she wants. And at the end of the day,
1: like if there's something that's really important in there, it's not fucking coming and out. And also, uh... like... Especially like this period it's, Like this election season With people yeah. campaigning It's like There's no accountability Zero Like you can say Whatever you want Zero, and then you Zero. Zero. People, I'm gonna like, find well, out Who killed Biggie yeah, yeah, I'm gonna yeah. find out
2: Who killed Pac I'm bringing out the aliens All this shit totally. I'm gonna make Frank Ocean Put out his album It's all gonna fucking happen <laughs> Hillary fucking 2016 boom. Totally. Like, yeah, boom. The boom. Then, yeah, then you get in the office same. And
1: it's like What about this And it's like Oh yeah Sorry If Bernie had just said
2: That he was gonna make Frank Ocean put his record out He would've totally Got the black vote
0: <laughs>
2: Straight up that's all he had to do. And everyone would have been like, what? Absolutely. No question. Whatever gets me Frank back. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: totally.
1: Totally. It's, it's so stupid. It's is it
3: the media's stupid. fault, though? It is, right? Is like, it
1: Frank Ocean's fault? It's Frank Ocean's fault. Because
3: everybody who used to just, like, spew shit and say whatever they want would get called for their shit, no? Yeah, absolutely. But and, now it's like, well,
1: yeah, it's all over. It's everybody's fault. It's everybody's it's fault. It's also like, even if you want to do something, you can't get the other side to agree to it. So it's like, you're in a state, like, yeah, it's... Just,
3: I mean, that's where, like, I've heard a lot of people and I don't surround myself with too many Trump supporters willingly. You know, it happens for Sure, by fault every- via family ties or something, but um, like, the the one thing that Everyone keeps saying is that yeah, Trump will get in the office, he can't do that much. I mean, there is the executive power to wage war for ninety days without mm-hmm. Congress. That is a big deal. You know? Yes. And it's executive action is a big deal. Sure. And executive action sure. has
2: become a, it's a man. Executive action was a thing that was really, really, like, the fires really got stoked under Bush, and Obama has gone fog wild with executive action. And some people will say for better, some people will say for worse, but regardless, like, it's a thing. And it's a thing that ultimately, like, has a significant amount of power for whoever gets in there. And what's weird is that we kind of want that as a people. This is why when we see a a candidate say, they're going to go in there and change things. We want them to go in there and change things. And we sort of want, we're like we're sort of rooting for dictators at this point. Mm. We're rooting for someone that will come in like we're, we're romanticizing this, the maverick and the rogue, like that started with Palin and it's kind of gone fucking yeah. out of control. And even to a degree like, and, and I'm, Bernie Sanders is doing the same thing. He's promising a complete overhaul of the United States government. Right. And whether you, No matter what your feeling is about that, he is promising a thing that like, the only way he's going to achieve that is through executive action. And like, he's not even going to achieve most of that through executive action. And by action.
3: completely alienating about uh, yeah. 40 to 50% of the country. And at the end of the day, the people that were rooting for him were like, yes, we want that one man go in there and change right. things. And like, and that's the
2: same... It's who's man? Yeah, exactly. The core of like, as much as we don't want to, like, a lot of people wouldn't want to admit that, but the core that is most Motivating someone to vote for Bernie Sanders is the same core that's motivating 100%. someone to vote for Trump. But I it's just also
1: just reactionary. I feel absolutely. like you're like, oh, there's a re- Bush. Okay, now we need the opposite. That didn't work. Yeah, oh, sure. we don't like this. Now we need Trump because this didn't Obama yeah, yeah, yeah. didn't work. Like it's just
3: well, you're you're totally right. It's about power. Like at this point, and and I, I did I read and I think I've even talked about it here. I read a statistic about Donald Trump where they're trying to like quantify exactly who his base is, mm-hmm. you know, and they can't. They're getting educated people, non-educated people, different races, different classes, like coming together in this weird mishmash that like Donald Trump. And the one tie in they're finding is these people's, um, predilection somehow to authoritarian power. Yep, They're attracted to an authoritative personality, someone that they think will go in there and cut through the fat of government and cut through the red tape and blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's where like you said and it's an interesting point i i've been scared of bernie sanders the whole time because of exactly what you're saying i find him divisive and he is divisive just like donald trump is and i would like prefer in my perfect world scenario To find a unifier. Can't
2: we all just get along? (laughs)
3: Exactly. But but that's where, like, Obama kind of tried his first couple years and sort of sat there in quicksand for a couple years. And until he decided to be an asshole, nothing got done. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that
2: was, and it's like a, I mean... this is sort of the core of my disenfranchisement is that we're dealing with an issue that's bigger than a president
3: and we gotta blow it up right it's, so so it's all gotta blow up yeah it's kind of, I mean kind of like, I'm getting there too man. so like
2: uh, there's a really good point this guy Dan Carlin I really enjoy he is a really great podcast hardcore uh, history he does hardcore history and he does common sense he started yes. and both are he started out with common sense and he started with hardcore history hardcore history is the best podcast it's incredible in the world yes um, and then second best I, yeah second best <laughs> <laughs> after going it's going off track hardcore history suck it this American life um, <laughs> now, um, and he has started. He has this political podcast called Common Sense, and it's um, it's libertarian leaning by and large because of who he, his nature is. Um, but like he made a really good point. Um, See so these people that are voting for Bernie Sanders because they're angry with the way the Democratic Party has become. You have these people that are voting for Donald Trump because they're angry with the Republican Party has become. And then you have this other weird core of people that would vote for either Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump because mm-hmm. they just don't want to vote for anybody that's the current situation, and are all doing it because they're angry his point was, do you think and this was a time when Ted Cruz was still a thing he was like, do you think if Ted Cruz becomes the next president or Hillary Clinton becomes the next president, that they're gonna just stop being angry? Mm. They're not gonna stop being angry, especially those two people who are two of the least likable people <laughs> Democrats hate Hillary Clinton and Republicans hate Ted Cruz and they're both with the presumptive nominees sure. they're not gonna stop being angry they're just gonna get more angry and there's only a few ways and historic evidence will sort of show this there's only a few ways that a national anger stops is either you go to war with each other you go to war with someone else or you elect the guy that you elected because you're angry and he totally bombs the fuck out Uh, and those are the three ways that it has happened and it has happened to us we, our Civil War, World War I and World War II like we were at odds, we were at each other's throats and World War II came along and then hey, um,
3: and so like, there are a couple... War, wait, you're forgetting option four. Which full-scale alien invasion? Full-scale
2: alien invasion. Yeah. Independence Day. Will Smith
3: unites the world absolutely
2: as, we as one. We get one flag. Countries <laughs> are dead. Fucking Randy Quaid dies for our sins. Uh-huh. He's the Jesus figure of the fucking movie, and it's going to be great.
3: And eventually, with a molding of films like this, we nominate someone like Morgan Freeman to be president-electorate of all of humanity. Yeah, of right? the,
2: the United Federation of Earth. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Obviously. So we solved that. <laughs>
3: yeah. Done, cool. Scheme. Done.
2: Boom. <laughs> yeah, boom. are out. <laughs> These mics were just not on stands.
1: <laughs> yeah. Cut the body loose. Out now Inside One Dummy uh i should have said this earlier he's on tour he's on tour he's always on tour uh he, right like now he's starting
0: on the west coast when this comes out
1: yeah on the sixth he starts in seattle works to the west coast he's in europe now and then he goes back to europe because why not why not man i would uh more importantly brad uh hour later how are oh you feeling oh my god amazing <laughs> i can't believe it <laughs> we gave brad a bunch of echinacea turned I, it around i gave him an iv drip of vitamin d yeah and that was great. I found these pills in my pocket that were kind of crushed up that I had him take. Those were awesome. Yeah, I don't know what those were. They are fantastic. Yeah, but Brad is looking much better. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, thanks to uh, Andy for coming by. Check out his new records. Fantastic. If you have the chance to see him live, you definitely want to go. Um, and if you want to support this podcast, uh, go to goingofftrack.com. Donate a dollar or two, help us pay for our server costs. We have over two hundred podcasts available to you for free right now.
0: For free,
1: uh, leave us a comment on iTunes or good review. That'll help us um, maybe get an advertiser someday. <laughs> in theory, um, if you want to advertise with the podcast, email me.
0: We could we could
1: whore ourselves out. Yeah, <coughs> email me at thejonubayer at gmail. We've dabbled in it. We've dabbled. We've had a pod. We've had an advertiser here or there, but uh, it's. It's a lot of work. And yeah, and po- you know just us. doing the podcast itself is a lot of work that it just seems like one more thing to worry about. Then again, it probably we should be worried <laughs> about it. But hey, uh if you don't have any money, that's cool. Uh just tweet at us, whatever. Just tell us you like the podcast, anything. You know, it's a labor of love, but it's nice to get feedback. If you hate it, keep it to yourself. Yeah. Don't really care. Listen to something else. You have a million options. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not here. I'm not your sounding board. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm um, good. I'm glad that Brad is still alive. Woo. I'm glad that Andy came by, and we will be back next week. So talk to you later.